it is important to say that the moment that I attempted to take my life, I felt instant regret. And that, and that was the most, it was just a rush of feelings where I felt this is not what I want to do. This is not what I need to do. That's Josh Morehouse. He's a social innovator, a speaker, and a survivor who's doing everything he can to get the most out of life. To anyone who meets him today, it had come as a shock that just a few years ago, he thought he wanted to die. Things were just so difficult that I couldn't even conceive the idea of brushing my teeth or, or putting my clothes on. Growing up, Josh always struggled with a deep-seated feeling that he wasn't good enough, a lack of self-worth that grew from persistent bullying. The only place he found solace was at the piano, where he focused all his time and energy from a young age in the hope of making it into a career. And he did, graduating uni with a degree in music and starting his own business teaching piano to school kids. Josh felt like he was doing what an adult was supposed to do, but something wasn't right. And I was contracting, subcontracting to schools and I was performing on weekends and still experiencing this feeling inside me that I wasn't good enough and that nothing I did was good enough. Before long, he was experiencing episodes of feeling totally overwhelmed, exacerbated by a traumatic car accident that shattered his confidence. I can't do anything right. You know, that, that, was, that was the shame, that was the feeling. He went looking for help to deal with his unresolved trauma and get his life under control, but the supposed solution he was given had the opposite effect. Josh was put on a heavy regime of prescription drugs that made him feel like he was disappearing and gave him a crippling case of akathisia, an unbearable drug-induced disorder that contributed to him attempting suicide and being admitted to a psychiatric ward. It felt like my body was jumping outside of its skin, you know, I had restless legs, you know, um, when I was laying in bed and I, I would just pace up and down the centre. Thankfully, Josh is still here with us today, a gift he says he owes to the support of community, to questioning opinions and to finding new channels for the creativity he's always had. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. Have you always been a creative? Yeah, that's a good question. I think from the beginning of my life, I've always kind of thought about different ways to do things, yeah. And in what sort of ways, like how did that come out? Yeah, so I know from the beginning, like, I reckon it probably started with watching The Wiggles. <laughs> actually you know and just wanting to get the toy guitars and just like you know rock out you know like i was a guitarist yeah and just, so you used to do that in front of the tv yeah totally doing the twist oh like, uh, yeah how good was the that. wiggles yeah so good and then uh throughout your young life like what sort of things were you creating or how did you sort of perceive the world in a way that was noticed as being a bit different yeah so um i started learning piano from my nana when i was about five and I always just wanted to be a pianist. And I think I was motivated by the piano. Like every every time I see a piano, I have to get I have to get on it. Wow. Um, so were you a child prodigy? I wouldn't describe myself that way. <laughs> were you naturally yeah. gifted at it? Or you just, for some reason, were really keen to be able to do it really well? Maybe a little bit of both, you know? Like I, I just really loved it. I think I loved where my mind went when I was at the piano. You know, and that I could kind of create this world. That was your first experience of flow state? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
And it's it's interesting you've brought this up first because actually only recently I found like a report that was written about me when I was about four or five years old. Apparently I was in a group for gifted children and I never knew this until recently. <laughs> Which yeah. is just like when you find these things yeah, out, family, you're just like, what? They wanted you to stay humble. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon it was probably something like that, right? Because, you know, it's, oh man, when I was feeling, you know, really, really distressed in my life, probably would have been good to know that maybe I was gifted. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, how did your love of playing piano develop? Was that also largely centered around your relationship with your nana? Yeah, I think that was a really big part of it, you know, and like if I'm thinking about going through school and, and things like that, it was at least once a week I would go to Nana's after school and she'd give me like two-hour piano lessons um, and, you know, we'd, we'd just explore. And I think for me, piano and, and music was a space that I could I could kind of have complete freedom but also complete control over you know even if I was learning a song you know I could I could do what I wanted and, and I don't know if this sounds odd right but I think from a very young age I had like an awareness of existing and that that was weird like very critical thinking yeah maybe it could be described that way um, I think it was just you know being really aware that I was alive and that I was here and just finding that that was a really odd thing kind of feeling that you know, existing and navigating through the world was like quite an enormous experience. I quite liked being at the piano and being in complete because it was simple control. It was simple in a sense, but also like playing the piano and and I guess what goes through your mind when you're creating and you're expressing yourself is reasonably complex too. Yeah. You know, but to feel like you have complete freedom within that context, I would never have described it that way as a seven year old. No, it would by have the been way, pretty crazy. If you did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just, I guess what I'm sharing with you now is, you know, it's sort of years of reflecting about my life since then and, and sort of just thinking about what were some of the thoughts I had as a kid and, you know, how's that kind of informed how I navigate through the world now, mm. you know. So what was your life like growing up? Um, so life was, um, you know, I grew up in a religious community um, and so life was going to church every Sunday Um it was going to, you know, religious school, um, which was very much about like the sort of the religious doctrine and living your life in a certain way. Um, and I reckon, you know, that's a good question too, because that sort of makes me think probably as well why I really gravitated towards creativity and the piano, because that was a space where I could kind of safely go beyond conventional boundaries and, and things like that, you know, in a, in a creative sense, you know. Because the structure around your life was very disciplined and very much sort of putting you in a, in a box from from a young age with the religious community? Yeah, I would say so. It was, it was certainly, you know, feeling like I had to live a certain way and had to abide by certain rules and, and perhaps not always feeling like there was good justification for those rules. And so I think that probably informed, you know, this this sort of mindset that I've had probably throughout my life, which is to sort of question rules and to question structures and, and, and sort of wonder, you know, do, do these rules or do these systems and structures actually serve anybody that, that's within them or not? And so you were always pretty much questioning that stuff rather than just going along with it? Yeah, I would say I was always questioning that stuff, not necessarily always externally. Um, you know, I think the confidence to question those things out loud, you know, comes... Uh, well, at least for me and my experiences come, you know, with trying to do that a little bit and a little bit here and there and then growing confidence to do that. That's an ongoing journey. Mm -hmm. um, but I think internally, I certainly always questioned 
things around me and wondered, you know, is this actually useful? Is this actually good for me? Is it good for anybody around me? And so what happened with religion and, and your religious journey then? Probably when I was about 16 or 17, you know, I sort of, um, you know, I, I, I probably like many people at that age, they sort of start, you know, making their own decisions and being able to act on them and, and things like that. And so for me, it was it was leaving the religious community um, when I was around 16, 17. That was also the time where I left school. I got into um, TAFE and I studied music at TAFE for a couple of years, which led to sort of studying jazz at, at uni and, and all of that. So that's kind of when I really, you know, kind of went in the direction of And when you say leaving and, the religious community, was it intense to the point where there was that ultimatum of, you know, in order to be part of this family, you need to subscribe to the religion or it wasn't? like that no it wasn't it wasn't like that like I had the choice to to not be a part of that community and and I act upon that choice what kind of a time did you have at school so in year eight and nine I went to a music school um that was really great and you know I was able to sort of learn more and more about music um after that I went back to the religious school um I found that a pretty difficult experience um again probably just with some of the rigidity and 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 the rules and things like that um and so i think as i was growing you know as a teenager and wanting to experiment and do different things you know that wasn't readily accepted by my environment and um you know i was bullied pretty badly in school and and things like that um yeah just you know memories like you know you even in year six, I remember sort of being out on the oval and, and sort of all the kids like pushing me down to the ground. And every time I sort of get close to being up on my knees, they push me down again and, and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I think that really affected affected me growing up. So how did you view yourself as a young person? I think my perception of myself growing up was basically that I was only any good or, or useful if I was behind or in front of the piano. And anything outside of that was pretty useless and you know piece of shit basically yeah and so that must have made you really want to stick to the piano what happened with your piano playing so when i was 18 i got accepted into um the conservatorium of music where i studied jazz um and that was a really big moment for me that felt like sort of validation that i was you know on the right track um i had an experience in my first year um, which I'll, I'll talk about, but it's really important that when I say anything like what I'm about to say, that we're not sort of creating a perpetrator, you know, sort of out of any anyone that said things or done things, you know, to me that um, we're sort of looking at it non-judgmentally as, as an as an event, something that happened, right? Mm. Um, and so in my first year, um, I had a piano teacher who sort of heard my heard my playing, and their response to that was, "Yeah, you've got a lot of work to do because your playing's falling on its ass." You know, that, that experience for me of being told that my piano was falling on its ass by someone that I, that I respected and that I viewed with having an authority on, on that, it destroyed me. Because you thought that's all you had to offer yeah, the world. Yeah, that's, that's, I felt like that was all I had left. So you believed whoever that was? Yeah, yeah, I believed that. And I internalised that and then I, and then I believed that, you know, I, you know, every time I'd get on the piano from that point, it was from a place of fear and, and, and feeling like I had to get to a point where my playing was not falling on its ass anymore. Yeah. But you ended up becoming a, a performing pianist, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did. And so, um, you know, throughout uni, you know, I formed bands and we used to play, you know, at venues and stuff like that. And then after uni, um, you know, I had a couple of years where I 
would perform every weekend uh, in jazz quartet and I would teach uh, in primary schools, teach piano about four days a week. So I did that for a few years, um, for a little while. So yeah, you're right. You know, it's it's interesting to look on it on that and sort of say, yeah, you know, what did I do there? Did I prove them wrong, or you know, because you you got all the way through the degree in the end. Yeah, I did. Yeah. But I think you know, for a long time, Callum, it, you know, it didn't matter what I did that would look like success on the surface. You know, I I still had that belief um, that it was shit. You know, and that it, that it wasn't any good. And you sort of start and going, piano specifically. Mm. Very related to the piano, but I think just in general as well. I just, you know, I'd been in many environments growing up, you know, where I was made to feel very small um, and that I was not very smart, um, you know, and not very significant. As an individual navigating their way through life, if you are surrounded by people and in environments that make you feel very small day in, day out, it's a very legitimate thing to do internalize You're going to believe that. it. Yeah. Of course. You know, it's a really um, reasonable response i think in fact to think anything different when that's all you're surrounded by and all that's being reinforced is almost impossible to believe that someone would be able to especially if it's from a young age when the brain's still growing and you're still maturing and developing if you're being sent those messages throughout you're gonna believe that that's you and then that's going to grow sort of stronger and stronger Mm. um and so what was your mental health like would you say when you were going through uni would i describe my mental health you know if i if i was to use that term as positive or negative you know for me it's always been quite a fluid thing that i have to be responsive towards and you know there's certainly experiences that i've had throughout my life where i've felt extremely suicidal i've had experiences of suicide um, where i felt very very distressed um, that you know i've felt hopeless and i've felt Overwhelm is a word that that comes up when I think about those experiences. In a lot of ways, my experiences of suicide are synonymous to my experiences of overwhelm. You know, after I'd finished university and I was teaching piano, I was setting up my own business and I was contracting, subcontracting to schools and I was performing on weekends and still experiencing this feeling inside me that I wasn't good enough and that nothing I did was good enough. Um, And in... At the end of 2016, I was involved in a head-on collision. Um, And at the same time, I was trying to keep my business afloat. I was trying to keep teaching in schools. And in that moment, the the experience of overwhelm was just, you know, it was just huge, you know. And, and, And leading on from that, you know, after that accident, it took me about a good 12 to 18 months to get behind a wheel again, you know. And just coming home from work and just, you know, bursting into tears you know because I just feel like so much is happening and it's because so much was happening you know I was trying to I was trying to teach four days a week gig every single weekend I'd just been in a head-on collision um, trying to just keep everything afloat pay my rent you know just stretched it was just like right you know and that for me, I think, is one of the most significant moments of overwhelm where I really started having experiences where, you know, perhaps I wanted to wanted to die. There was too much. Yeah, there was just too much. Why did you think that you had to do that much as well? You know, where was that coming from? And it was probably coming from wanting to prove your self-worth to yourself and trying to, you know, put yourself in a, in a position that you could say, oh, well, 
I am valuable because I do all these things and and do you feel like that was a, a driver? Yeah, for sure. And I would say as well, like there's lots of stories that exist around us, you know, and in us that, that dictate to us what's appropriate or what's not appropriate, right? And so there's this story that, you know, you finish university, you get yourself a job or you start a business, you know, whatever that is. And that, you know, and then you're good. You're sort of making ends meet and you've got your shit together. You know, what the hell yeah, does that even that, mean, that, right? <laughs> and that's sort of where it ends. Like yeah. you don't really hear more past that. It's like we're taught to get to that point and then it's like, okay, and then that's good and you just keep doing that and yeah. then have a family and die and it's cool. That's right. And then you actually realise, you know, over time that most of the people that, that perhaps propagate that storyline don't have their shit together either. And that's okay. Like it's totally okay not to have your shit together. Yeah, totally I just think normal. we need to start being honest about perhaps not having our shit together. But you very much felt the pressure at the time that you needed to and you needed to have it all in order quickly mm. and that that was all on you to make that happen. Yeah, 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 for sure. And with the with the collision, I know we don't want to dwell on any one incident, but mm. what do you remember from that experience, and how badly were you injured, and what was the recovery process like? Mm. So physically, I was very lucky. Um, I didn't really have any physical injuries other than, um, you know, sore back, and you know had to go to the physio for quite some time. But I think emotionally it took me a very long time to recover from from that longer than i think i even realized at the time how did it change you it destroyed my confidence you know i think because you know i'd only just gotten my peas when that happened as well and i think it, it played into this narrative right of of not being good at anything because i'd had my peas for like two weeks and then was in a head-on collision you know and it wasn't even my my fault and that's as much as I need to go into about that but like the way I internalized that experience was just like geez you know I can't even do this you know and and then the shame I think of of just not being able to get behind the wheel in in the car you know without somebody basically sitting next to me and um you know either literally or metaphorically holding my hand you know and just small drives to the shops there and back and things like that for for over a year and having to get people to give me lifts to work mm. because I couldn't get Because you were car. traumatized by it. Yeah, absolutely I was. Yeah. And even now it's like, you know, it's that's just one example of of trauma and there's and there's many other examples, but to continue on this example, it's you know, I'm still driving and and you know, I have these experiences where, you know, if something's coming towards me quite fast, you know, you you might have a bit of a flashback and sort of remember, you know, what what that experience was like when there was a collision and you sort of, you know, you feel that and you go, oh, fuck, you know, and and there's lots of there's lots of things like that, you know. And when you say shame, is that because people would have been saying, oh, you know, you didn't even get hurt, it wasn't even that bad? I'm not sure if it was that. I think it was just the shame of, of not, you know, adhering to perhaps what was, you know, the the narrative of of what should happen you know when you sort of hit your early 20s mid 20s and start navigating your way through life you know it was just feeling like i can't do anything right you know that that was that was the shame that was the feeling you know and so who who was there to support you or did you have people in your corner throughout all this or have you felt alone a lot I've felt alone a lot in that in that experience, you know, and it's important to say that that was that was a while ago now, you know, 
Um, certainly people like my brother have been really amazing, um, you know, in, in some of my most significant moments of distress, you know, my brother has been one to give me a phone call every single day. And that's something that we do with each other now, you know, even still, like, you know, I'll call him or he'll call me. And that's a thing that we do, that we check in and we, we just have a phone call probably every day. And we've never made a rule about that being a thing that we do. It's just what happens, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so in all the most significant moments of distress for me, it's been the people that will just check in, connect, listen, you know, not provide advice or solutions or anything like that. Just be with me in the mess. And that's the advice you give to people now? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I would say that that's, that's how we should be approaching a lot of these things, you know. Um, it's mildly ironic that you know i'm saying don't give advice and then you've asked me if that's the advice i should give and i think that's why i kind of took a moment to respond to that because i'm like hang on a second (laughs) you know but i guess yeah it's fair to say like i think if we are going to give any advice it's like the advice should be to just listen or or to just sit with people in the mess you know some for some people and this is my experience you know through my own distress and observing others and witnessing others in distress um for for a lot of us, it's not about giving us solutions or being able to fix the problems because they're actually just incredibly complex. And it, and a lot of the time it feels like, you know, I've got 99 problems and if you give me advice to solve one of them, it doesn't do jack shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's how it feels like, you know. And so a lot of the time giving permission or or sharing permission to feel the way that you feel is the healing experience, I think, that a lot of us are perhaps looking for. I know that's been my experience um, and for some, this might seem controversial, but this is what I've heard people say to me. And it's certainly been my, my experience that giving permission and feeling permission to actually feel suicidal and that I want to die is actually the healing experience that I require in order to not choose to die. Being able to express that to someone. Yeah. We need to be really cautious about how we approach things from that perspective, I think, you know, because what happens is that when we share our experience that you know perhaps we want to die or that we feel suicidal often the response from others around us is rooted in that fear of not wanting us to die and what that eventuates in is lots of advice and solutions thinking that that isn't helpful and that isn't useful Um, and so a lot of the time it's actually just giving that permission to feel what we feel in a non-judgmental way is actually the healing experience um, you know, I started saying earlier an example of, you know, when I've shared that I feel suicidal and, and I'll continue with that when people say, um, don't do that. Think of your family, think of your friends, think of this or that, you know, what, what might I need to do? Or do we need to get you to a mental health service? Do we need to get you to a doctor? Do we need to do this or that? No one's pretending that those aren't good ideas, but it's just that when that is the first, you know, response to that expression, that just perpetuates my distress. Because then you're yeah. thinking about all these pressures that are on you. Yeah, right. Whereas when people have said, you know, if I was in your position, Josh, I might feel like a, like dying too. You know, that that seems really bloody scary what you're going through. Yeah, so first, the first thing is you want to feel like you're actually being heard. Yeah. Rather than the knee-jerk reaction of feeling as though you're not really being listened to and someone's just trying to sweep in with whatever they've heard 
you're supposed to say without giving you that space first. Yeah, for sure. That's certainly a really big part of it. And I think it goes beyond just being heard. I think it's actually validating the experience as being a legitimate response. Mm. So you feel like there's compassion there and you're not being judged for it and that you're not, you know, crazy for feeling the way that you that you feel and that you shouldn't be ashamed to be expressing yourself and, and feeling this way and that there's actually nothing wrong with that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, totally. So you had people who were able to hold that space for you and allow you to express that at the right times? Yes, I have. And that, that came certainly a lot later. You know, I've certainly had a lot of experiences as well where I didn't have that around me as well. Mm. And I guess that's what's given me this perspective that I have as well, is, is experiencing the duality of that. And without going into specifics of attempts, when you were feeling as overwhelmed as you felt, how bad did it get? Well, I attempted to kill myself and I was very close to being successful. Yeah. And what happened after that? Um, I was sent to the hospital um, where I was admitted into psychiatric wards. And then what was your experience there? I think to answer that, I'm going to need to backtrack a little bit, okay. if that's all right. Yeah, so we're at the start of 2017. So I told you before that the end of 2016 was a head-on collision and I'm feeling extremely overwhelmed. Mm. Yep. And so the advice around me was to go and see, um, see a psychiatrist. Um, and so that's what I did. I went and saw a psychiatrist and within about, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, I received a, a diagnosis and was put on medication. And that is what began this, this whole year in 2017, where I spent about 40% of, of that year in and out of um, institutions and mental health centres. The narrative around me when that happened changed very, very drastically from one whereby, you know, I was trying to make a career out of my playing and all of that changed to now I had this label. Um, and the trajectory for my future uh, was very different once that happened. In a lot of ways, what it felt like, Callum, is I went to a specialist seeking help with my problems and instead was made to feel like I was the problem. Because it was all these things that were happening around me that were really overwhelming and really difficult to deal with. Um, and rather than addressing any of that or helping me to build capacity to, to navigate my way through any of that, it was, here's a diagnosis, here's some medication. Um, and so, you know, I moved, I moved back home to live with my parents um, and I did what I could to keep working in my job. Um, but some of my most significant moments of overwhelm and distress would come after I was put on a new medication, you know, and, and so my experience would be, I think on one stage, uh, at one stage I was on, you know, a thousand milligrams a gram of of Valparate, which was mood stabilizer. I was on 500 milligrams of Amisulpride, which is an antipsychotic. I was also being put on antidepressants and I was also um, taking benzodiazepines. And 
there's two things that I experienced being on that medication. One was feeling like I was disappearing and the other one was just feeling like I was experiencing even more distress. And so I think it actually just compounded all the feelings that I'd had before, right, about how I was useless and not good enough and that there were just problems that existed in me. You know, the narrative of, of the treatment team and, and things like that and people like that was very much about how do we fix the problems that exist within Josh, you know, rather than actually enabling Josh to navigate his way through life you know, and, and to enable Josh and to help Josh build capacity to actually address all the things that are happening around him. Um, and so in my moments of just feeling completely hopeless and completely in overwhelm, that's when I would try and kill myself. That didn't eventuate. Um, and I'm extremely lucky that that didn't, that didn't work. At least that's how I see it now. I certainly see it that way that I'm, I'm extremely lucky that I'm still alive and very grateful to be alive. Um, the thing that is important to say, and I know that you said, Callum, not to go into specifics, but it is important to say that the moment that I attempted to take my life, I felt instant regret. And that, and that was the most, it was just a rush of feelings where I felt this is not what I want to do. This is not what I need to do. We actually have to talk about that experience because that's important to say, right? Mm, absolutely. But then immediately after that, I mean, suicidality just doesn't just go away. No. So after those extreme experiences where, you know, it had the outcome that it had and you had that, that moment of realisation, what was what was it like in the days after that? Confusion. Mm. That's the word that comes up for me when I think about that. Mm. It's like you just don't really know. You're like, should I be here? Should I not be here? But I do know that in that moment when I made the attempt, it was instant regret. Um but afterwards, it's very confusing because you kind of, well, at least in my experience, I'd kind of fluctuate between not really knowing how to feel about it and kind of feeling grateful as well and just kind of feeling a little bit confused, like yeah. I'm still... Almost like you didn't want to live, but you didn't want to die either. Mm. Or you wanted to live, but you didn't want to live the life you were, felt like you were being caged into. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was certainly... And it seems like it. a big part of this was that that narrative that had been there throughout your life was reinforced and strengthened by being put in this box mm. where you were told that, you know, you were the problem and everything else happening in your life was sort of extraneous and not really the point and it was actually chemical or biological within mm. you. And that attitude that, you know, Josh has always been the one who was, you know, hopeless or couldn't couldn't get the job done or wasn't good enough that is true and you felt that that was being more and more reinforced rather than dealing with what you on reflection have have found were actually the the issues yeah absolutely and I, and i think there were really legitimate examples of of why that would make me feel that that was the case you know there was a specific person that i that i saw that was in a in a position of power and authority and and they were a specialist in some regard um and i remember coming to them and saying like I, I was so distressed that I was basically pacing around my house nonstop for hours. And then when I went and saw them, you know, at, 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 at the space that I saw them, I was pacing up and down, you know, basically almost might as well have been running, you know, just because everything that was around me was just felt like it was too much. And I think part of it as well is the medication that I was on made you know, contributed to me feeling that way as well. And so I remember going and seeing this particular person and trying to articulate what I was experiencing and that, you know, it was just, 
It was a moment, Callum, where things were just so difficult that I couldn't even conceive the idea of brushing my teeth or, or putting my clothes on. And that, you know, my belief was that I would never be able to navigate my way through the world without, you know, a support worker basically being next to me every single day, day in, day out, and being in supported living. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with going through life and having that experience. But that was just, that was how I felt. And the reason that I felt like that way is because I felt that I was useless. Um, and so I remember trying to articulate that to to a psychiatrist and the response was, Josh, I don't know what to tell you other than just suck it up. Wow. That's a pretty shocking response, isn't it? Did you just get the one opinion? At this point, yes. Yeah. And, and was so, that the person that put you on the drugs to start with? Yeah. Yeah, it was the person that put me on the drugs. Uh -huh. um, it's hard to believe someone in that position giving you that response. It's a pretty shocking statement, you know, and we can just kind of sit with that and go, yep, that's shocking, right? And and it's not about excusing it. It's just about understanding, I think, that where that kind of thinking comes from and where, where perhaps people might say things like that is because they're so... Their thinking is perhaps so dominated by this medical model that it's just like, you know, you need to get your shit together or we need to treat you or we need to fix you, you mm. know. And so it's just not addressing the social factors or the environmental factors that exist around a person. Because they're a lot more complicated and they're a lot harder than just a prescription. Yeah. Because mm. yeah, it's also important not to fully discredit, you know, some people do need to take medications for various things. But I appreciate what you're saying with your experience that there was a whole lot more to it than that that wasn't even attempted to be addressed that's right and th this is this is what i observe and what what i feel is that the moment that we start to feel sort of too certain about how to approach these things is perhaps the moment that we should start feeling a little bit more cautious mm, no matter what it is in life no matter I what think. it is yeah. yeah exactly and so where i come from is that i've had my experiences of what i've lived through and what i live through and I've also observed other people and I've listened a lot to other people. And so that informs, you know, how I, how I make decisions and what, what I think about the world. But what I see is that there are so many different schools of thought at play here, you know, in this space of mental health. You know, for a lot of us who are, you know, in, in positions that might be described as being an advocate or, or in positions that are described as being a professional or someone with lived experience, you know, the thing that we need to do, I, I feel, is that just acknowledge that there are a lot of different mental models at play here, you know, and not to sort of feel too stuck in this is what it is or this is what it isn't, right? Mm. Because I feel really strongly against medication, but that's my experience. And I have good reason for that. And I've also seen others have that experience too. And so that's a really legitimate thing to start speaking about yeah. but what i'm not saying is that we should now just get rid of any, everything else right um at least not this stage in in my journey i'm not saying that because I, there's a there's a sense of humility i feel as well that i should have right because you know i've been i've been talking about these things and doing these things for three years in the greater scheme of thing that's not very long you know it's long enough to have learned a lot and to be able to contribute a lot 
but I'm still really early on in this journey, right? And so, so much of this journey and where I'm at at the moment is just trying to understand a little bit better, you know? Yeah, and that's what we're all trying to do. And I'm, exactly. very, I'm very much the same. Mm. But I think having that view where you've got your strong opinion based off your own experience and what you've seen, uh, but then not totally invalidating everything else actually makes you a lot more credible. And that we need to, in this discussion and in all discussions, we have to be able to consider both sides and fundamentally understand that no one's experience is the same as another person's yeah yeah i agree you know how prepared are we to just put our assumptions aside and actually be in genuine relationship with another human being yeah and listen and try Mm. to understand and i guess that's what i always want people to get out of this podcast is that people are worth listening to and that you you don't just know someone's story of face value and certainly what i'm trying to get out is just to understand where you're coming from and how you were thinking because that's what's useful is trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes that's how we actually learn Uh, but it takes an effort and it takes withholding judgment and it takes compassion and a lot of the time in this world today uh, we want to stick to what we know and what we believe to be true and anyone who questions that or challenges that we want to go back at them and say no you're wrong for this reason and I'm right for this reason and Mm. so the thing I love about this platform and why I'm passionate about having these conversations and creating that is because it's a space where we don't do that Mm. and uh, we don't all have to believe the same thing or have had the same experience and in fact we have to be the opposite in order to create these conversations that are worth listening to and that's why I've got you here today Mm. you know telling your story and talking about this stuff Mm. so when did you stop taking the drugs Uh, I stopped taking prescribed drugs in early 2018 and how did you get to that decision yeah so end of 2017 was around so around november december was when i had a second suicide attempt um and that occurred just after i'd spent two weeks in an intermediate care center uh in no longer during that time when i was in that center um i couldn't stop moving um i just felt that there was this deep like it's it's hard to describe callum but it was like this turmoil inside of me that i've just never i'd never experienced before you know and it felt like my body was jumping outside of its skin you know, I had restless legs, you know, um, when I was laying in the bed and I, I would just pace up and down the centre, you know. And I remember um, I remember the treatment team there at first were just, you know, trying to encourage me to get involved in some of the programs. And, and at first it was kind of saying, you know, Josh, you know, you've got to... Um, you've got to help us to help you, you know, that kind of language and and things like that. And I remember trying to say, there's something wrong. Like, you know, I've experienced distress before, but this is something else, you know. Um, There's something just not right. There's something wrong. Um, And it took a while, uh, but then I was, I was seen by another psychiatrist there and they, and they described the experience as medication induced akathisia. And akathisia is essentially the experience that I've just described to you. Um, And it can happen being, from being on, uh, medication uh, and so is this the one that's synonymous with benzos in particular 
yeah that, yeah like, jordan peterson yeah had? yeah so um yeah so he's been talking about that a lot mm. recently yeah so that that same experience is what um well that you know what i mean mm. you know was akathisia that's what i experienced um and a lot of the time akathisia is described as just like a an issue with your movement and you can't stop moving um it's really important i feel as someone who's experienced akathisia to just talk more openly about that experience and the and the emotional turmoil and because that is an experience that occurs in 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 akathisia um that isn't talked about as as much and so so was it painful or was it just like you could never be still and from within almost it was both and it was just like this feeling like i just had to always keep moving you know all the time you know just like so restless and you know sort of walking on the spot and you know um, and so when I left the center, you know, part of that was, well, the reason why I was in the center in the first place is because I'd spent about 14 hours in my own home, just like pacing around um, the kitchen table, you know, just an entire day. You Which know. was this akathisia. Mm, yeah. yeah. And it took a while to, to sort of notice that that was what was causing it. Um, and so I came out of the, the, the ICC, um, you know, interestingly enough, you know, you've brought up the benzodiazepines. And so I hadn't been on a lot of benzodiazepines before um, experiencing akathisia. I had, been, I had been on them. Interestingly, the response to me being diagnosed with akathisia was to prescribe me more benzodiazepines. Um, you know, sort of not making a judgment about that, but I just certainly find that interesting that that was the response. Um, anyhow, so about a week or so after being in the ICC, um, I had applied for a job, uh, and because that was sort of the narrative again, it was kind of, you know, maybe Josh, you just need to get a job and that'll solve everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, I did that, went for an interview, got a job. I remember the weekend before, um, the weekend before, I was meant to start that job just feeling like that wasn't you know that wasn't where I was supposed to go in my life and I remember I was also working I'd been working at Coles pushing trolleys you know part-time in and amongst all of this you know the teaching piano the gigging I was also working at Coles and and I remember I had to be at work at a certain time on the Sunday Saturday or the Sunday and um, I slept in and I was late um, and so that was when I made another attempt um, because I just felt again like I can't do anything. Um, and so I was then admitted to Margaret Tobin Psychiatric Centre where I then spent, from memory, it was about the next 10 weeks I spent there. Um, and when I was there, the response to how I was describing my experiences was essentially, Josh, we think that you, you're, you're treatment resistant um, and, you know, we suggest uh, ECT, uh, electroconvulsive therapy. And so that was really terrifying because um, I didn't want that to happen. Um, but it was what was being suggested to me. Um, 
and I just I didn't feel right about it. And I remember I was talking to my brother a lot, just saying, "Oh, they're going to make me do ECT. They're going to make me do ECT. You know, my life is so chaotic, and I just you know I don't know what's going to happen. And they're going to make me do this, and I'm really really worried. And you know, I'm to this day I'm just I'm so grateful to to my brother because he he called the treatment team and he he advocated for me and he said, you know, I think it's important that we get some second opinions, um, that some other um, people have a, have some conversations with Josh, and that's essentially what happened. Is that I spoke to two other people, two other psychiatrists, and at the end of it, they were questioning the diagnosis that I'd been given and the and the treatment plan that I'd been on. Um, they were questioning the legitimacy of it, or you know, sort of why why that had been the approach. Um, and so still weren't sort of willing to say, you know, that there was a misdiagnosis or anything like that, but certainly were very vocal and open about questioning um, the approach that um, had been taken with me throughout the past year. What were you diagnosed with? Bipolar type 1 disorder, yeah. And for me, I don't talk about that a lot because it, to me, it's meaningless. Um, I would describe myself as having dropped my disorder um, because I don't, I don't think that it's ever been useful for me to identify with, with that, um, you know. And there's lots of things I could go into with that. I think just to sort of streamline the, the, this part of the conversation though, um, the second opinions essentially resulted in, you know, we don't really think that... Um, the way that you know you've been treated is 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 useful is is helpful. Perhaps what would be useful and helpful is just some therapy, just just to speak with someone regularly. And so I started seeing a psychologist while I was. And you stopped taking the drugs at that point. Not quite. I still was kind of taking some of the drugs at that point. Um, and so I started seeing a psychologist and. The approach from that psychologist was was very very different, and we just started talking talking about you know what I wanted out of life, and um, you know I I remember she saying you know just kind of write down things that you that you want to do you know and and maybe just start doing some of the things that you want to do you know <laughs> like genius you know but you know it. It's, it sounds really simple, but I think what occurred there that was really powerful is that it was actually permission, you know, it was actually permission. Because to that point, yeah. it's been like, you're sick, you have to go into uh, in intensive care, you have to fix this, you know, you're a problem, you're damaged. There's no room in there for, oh, I feel like going and doing this thing today and like just enjoying that, you know. Mm. That's right. And so, you know, really quickly, I'll just mention at the end of 27, end of 2017, um, I had been sort of getting involved with this um, community centre, the Onkaparinga Youth Enterprise Hub. It was just people that, you know, were friendly to me and, and that we could be creative. And, you know, I said to you earlier today, it's like, you know, I love creativity and I love being creative. And I think that's where I actually started to see that creativity went beyond the piano, you know, mm. for how I and saw And you it. started to see something else that you could actually do. Yeah, because I was like, oh, huh, like, you know, I'm pretty creative and apparently that's valuable to yeah. <laughs> people. But you'd never yeah. sort of been shown that outside of piano. Yeah, no, nah, not at all. And so at the time... That's how I described it. It was just like 
I get to be creative and people like me for me and we can just hang out and mm. we can do good stuff. Um, so what impact did that have on the whole situation? It had a huge impact. And I think that um, part of the reason why is because in those spaces, you know, in, in, in community in, in community work, a lot of the approach is a strengths-based approach. You know, it's, it's about inviting, you know, a stranger into the into the center of community and inviting them to and, and celebrating the gifts of a stranger you know celebrating people's gifts and so it's not about you know what's wrong with you or what do we need to fix with you it's actually you know what's, what's good strong. about you yeah like mm. you know what's good about you what what are your strengths you know how can we how can we use your or how can you use your strengths to kind of leverage on to perhaps you know navigate through some of your challenges and things mm. like that and so the narrative is completely different it's about rather than treating individuals and assuming that we you know as a as a service provider or a friend or or a um or a, a clinical practitioner having the answers it's actually about how do we enable this person to solve their own problems and actually believing that they have the capacity existing within within them to do that and that they have help around them and they don't have to do it all on their own yeah, as well exactly so did yeah. you start to focus on the positive stuff more from that experience yeah absolutely and and so that was a really big part of the experience at oh yeah and also you know with my psychologist a suggestion that i that i had um that she had given me which was actually quite good advice she just said you know maybe start journaling Mm. And, and but part of that was also strength based because I'd already mentioned to her that I really loved writing and I kind of always wanted to use my writing a bit more. And so she was just like, oh, maybe just start kind of like writing about your experiences and and stuff like that. And so that's kind of what I would do is that I would spend a lot of time reflecting and thinking about you know my life and the things that I've been through and what I actually wanted, you know, and and what I felt was important and thinking about um, you know values and mindset and. All of those things were were ingredients. So what was the process of joining Oh Yeah, working there, being with the psychologist and then deciding to move off the meds you were on? Yeah, because that was your question yeah, in the beginning, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, so I think what occurred really was that psychologist said kind of do whatever you, you want to do, you know, I tried that went to oh yeah things were just going really really well and I actually just got to a point where I just didn't want to take them anymore and I didn't feel that it was useful and so I just stopped taking them and was there resistance to that no yeah no not not in my case I think because there had been certain elements at play around me that had led to a moment where I could kind of do that mm. you know if I had have tried to make that choice you know six to eight months beforehand it would have been very different I think mm. and it's important to say as well that I did have an experience in early 2017 where I did try and stop taking medication very suddenly and that, that was a really bad experience mm. um but what you're saying is, you know, you're not advising anyone, everyone to drop their medication or that necessarily someone else would have the same experience, obviously. Yeah, no, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not now saying like I took, I, I stopped medication and it was wonderful, so stop your medication. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, not what, it's not what I'm saying. No. Part of the reason why I'm, I'm talking really candidly about my experience with medication and, and where it went wrong, where it went bad is that I just feel a lot of people don't know, you know, and... and we just don't talk about that as much, I find, you know, and so I just kind of want to, 
I want people to just know, you know, to just be aware. Like, for me, it wasn't a situation of being put on medication and that being helpful. Like, mm. it was actually a really awful experience. Mm. So question it. Yeah, exactly. Get like, a second opinion. Yeah, just saying, is this right? You know, I, I know people are saying this is right, or maybe I even think it's right, or I don't know if it's right. Like, just kind of question what's what's occurring, you know, and especially if like you're having a feeling like in your gut, you're, you're sort of thinking to yourself, it doesn't feel right. This just doesn't seem right. You know, don't don't then accept, you know, that you must just be wrong and that and that it is right. You know, I think that's important probably for all of us in, as we're having conversations about this. And you've said as well, that's a really big part of why you're doing doing this. And it's it's amazing. It's like, how can we just kind of create space to share different experiences and different opinions mm. and not necessarily be judgmental about them but to actually just allow them to like manifest you know in the in the atmosphere for us to go oh like this is actually what we're playing with rather than thinking that maybe it's this it has to be that or that yeah it's mm. like letting it all out and then going oh like it's actually a bit more complex yeah, than perhaps we bit, thought it was that yeah. bit of that gray area that you operate in between and you know Another part of your story is it wasn't just one catalyst or one thing that led you down the roads that you went down and it wasn't just one thing that fixed you and you're still not fixed and you wouldn't deem yourself by that title now because mm. you know, mental health is a, is a continuum and life itself is a journey and I'm sure you, you, as I do, struggle with various things to this day that you'll continue to and like you said at the start, it's something that you constantly have to manage i started experiencing a lot of fear when you messaged me to say do you want to come in tomorrow <laughs> and you know it's really funny callum like when i saw that message i was like <laughs> and i didn't reply instantly like i went outside and then i came back in and then I was like, man, if I want to do the things that I say I want to do, like mm. I can't be saying no to these kinds of things, yeah. you know, but I, I experienced a lot of fear with that. Like, you know, that could be described as anxiety. Well, it's or not an easy thing to do, you know. That's right. And, but then because of that, I guess I started thinking about that experience a bit, you know, leading up to, to now. And, and I was like, you know, how, how am I making sense of this? And I think the best that I came up with that felt useful was like, it's not like the fear ever goes away, but the fear, I think it becomes less painful over time. You know, I remember a time where like anything that felt scary was a really emotionally painful. Like crippling. Experience. Yeah. And so over time, it's like a part of it is, you know, different. You learn to find different people. But that's also, that's also getting skills. through stuff and having a history of, you know, things being scary or hard or painful and getting through it because... Mm. The more you have that evidence, the more you know that it is possible to push through. And in the early days of your young adult life, before you've really been tested and know for sure if you can get through that stuff, I think there's a tendency for it to be even more overwhelming because there's nothing there to prove that you can actually get through it. Yeah. But even you yeah. at this point in your young life where you're 26, you, you know, you've been through a lot. You've had a lot of really painful difficult experiences and you're still here yeah totally and and you're right like over time like a lot of the kind of emotions still exist but it's like pain becomes a like less frequent in those experiences because i've learned to like navigate through things better and so where i've been at is like okay so how can i slow down a little bit 
to actually just understand the context of of the challenge a little bit better and so that's why i've gone back to uni and i've been studying applied health i spent the better part of this year um learning about social entrepreneurship and and how to address complex social problems and things like that and so that's where i've been at really is you know rather than jumping towards a solution and saying you know this is my thing you know i'm just sharing my story and i'm saying you know this is what's happening and i'm kind of dedicating my life and that's what i've been doing over the last three years is just you know going into community listening to people trying to understand experiences as best as i can you know and so it's not just about me coming in and saying this is my thing that i'm now doing that's going to fix everything it's like mm. that's not going to happen like no one can do that you know this is it's incredibly complex and we have identified that even in this in this conversation um but you're looking towards how can you help community in the future because you've got so much out of that and obviously learned that that is deeply important to you and to other people absolutely and so you know i'm doing i spend most of my time probably 90 percent of my time just trying to understand you know and then the other part of that is you know i'm always willing and open to come and speak to people speak at schools unis corporate groups and things like that community events to share my story i've found that when i do that people find that really really useful and so i continue to do that because that feels useful not just for the people that listen but also for me and so that feels really significant beautiful man well you're doing a, a fantastic job of that um and thank you for telling that story and in that detail because mm. there's some really important stuff in there that a lot of people will relate to and it's true i haven't spoken about the medication side of things on this podcast yet or someone who's been admitted to a psychiatric ward or, or had a story like that um so it's hugely valuable to have you on and i'm really glad that you uh said yes to my text message and and uh, didn't <laughs> let that that fear uh stop you from coming in because it, it does help other people and it, it really makes a difference and, I, and i'm sure it's good for feels good for you to talk about it as mm. well man so i just want to yeah. say thank you and i'm glad glad we met yeah me too man thanks so much if you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. You can follow Youngblood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and visit our website youngbloodmedia.com.au to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. A huge thank you to our local business supporters who've joined our mission to change the lives of young men for the better and help make this possible. We're all in it together. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.